Healing can happen when people share their stories. Welcome to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. Discover true stories from those who were called to sit in the witness chair. Experience their journey through their legal process and beyond. This podcast brings to light the trauma and stress caused by testifying under oath and offers resources by talking with witnesses, key litigators, and mental wellness professionals to assist with different approaches one can utilize to prepare to take the stand and how to heal after the encounter. And now, here's your host, Juliet Huck. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Trauma, Trial, Transformation from a beautiful summer day in Los Angeles. My guest today is a senior deputy district attorney over a special victims unit in the 4th Judicial District Attorney's Office in Colorado Springs, Colorado. He handles very sensitive cases such as child abuse, sexual assault, homicide cases, and he's done most of this over his career, so there will be some sensitive materials today. He currently supervises eight deputy district attorneys in the SVU unit. unit. It's going to take me a second to get that through. (laughs) Uh, He supervises six to eight DAs in district court. Uh, Additionally, he handles special prosecutions, officer-involved use of force review, as well as mentors, incoming misdemeanor DAs. I would like to welcome Kelson Kastad. Welcome, Kelson. Morning. How are you? I'm well. Did I pronounce your last name correct there? I want to make sure that I uh, I get your right name out there. It's Castane. Castane. Okay, great. Well, I, I uh, probably should have clarified that, but this is a pretty That's laid okay. back <laughs> podcast. So <laughs> I'm just getting to know you. And um, I'm really, really grateful that you're here today because you have such a great mission. And um, I was led to you by a television interview, which we'll talk about here in a few minutes. But can you explain to like viewers exactly what an SVU unit is and who does it serve? Sure. So some different district attorney's offices organize their office in different ways. We're very lucky that we have the resources um, to dedicate specific district attorneys to work on, as you said, very sensitive cases, uh, child abuse cases, um, sexual assault cases, whether they are victim or child, or excuse me, adult or, vic- or child victims. And we handle pretty much everything that deals with sexual offenses within our judicial district. Um, So unfortunately, we handle kind of very sensitive issues, you know, every day, all day. Right. Pretty intense. So what does it mean when you to interact with interpersonal violence? What what is the word like interpersonal? Is that is that what you're talking about here? Yeah. I mean, we distinguish for for SVU differences between the type of charge. So interpersonal violence can kind of expand out beyond sexual offenses or child offenses um, into you know regular assaults or other kind of violent crime, um, aggravated robberies, situations where people are using violence or force against each other um, to accomplish whatever goal it is that they're they're aiming for. Right. So so of course most people like in my world, they see things on TV and most people know that, you know, law and order, SVU. Can you explain the difference or even maybe some similarities into how television portrays it and how it really is in reality. So it's like sure. In my world. <laughs> yeah. I think SVU and or law and order and CSI are the two biggest influences yeah. we see on our juries. But um, you know, the, 
the biggest thing is that everything gets solved in 45 minutes, right? And and the reality right. is that that just doesn't happen. Right. Um, I think one of the things that, from my experience, is true is the close relationship between the law enforcement officers and detectives who are investigating those cases and the district mm-hmm. attorney's office. Um, oh. We have a thankfully very good relationship with our local law enforcement, um, and so you know they they consult with us when they have questions about cases or um, if they need us to review, you know, filings or things within a case. Um, so I, I really appreciate that that is depicted well in, at least in the TV show SVU. Right. Um, you know, the courtroom stuff, Law & Order, I think, has a uh, loose affiliation with the rules of evidence. Uh, so I'm not sure that, that what happens in a courtroom is all that accurate. Right. Um, but I, I do appreciate the way that the show at least tries to deal with some of these difficult issues. Yeah, and at least the fact that they are bringing to to to, you know public in a way that um, people understand that they, how, at least a little bit how they work, because I, I go through the same thing. I, you know, so many people I've seen court shows and, you know, jury shows and things like that. I'm like, no, it's, it's, it's nothing like that. But the one thing that it's doing is, is at least bringing some familiarity to what it's like to be in the courtroom or what it's like to be questioned and things like that, which I think is actually not a bad thing, but just so my, my audience understands. So you've got law enforcement, and then you have the district attorney's office. Can you explain just a little bit of difference? I think most people think that's all one. Can you explain the the line there? Yeah. So if somebody calls 911, they're going to be in touch with a, a dispatcher who works for law enforcement. We have a sheriff's office and a police department inside of our jurisdiction. So I, I use law enforcement generally because it doesn't really matter which one you get called to. They're, they're both going to respond. But they will send somebody out to start working and investigating your case, taking down statements, talking to witnesses, et cetera. For most of, of certainly the SVU cases, um, they will then have a detective get involved to follow up on the investigation, to maybe um, look at forensic testing or interview suspects or kind of work through whatever develops within the case. And most of these cases, you're not going to have solved in the initial call out or within an hour. There's going to be, sure. you know, days or even weeks worth of investigation that goes into them. Um, sometimes much, much longer than that. Uh, but once the case develops to a point where law enforcement believes that they have identified a person who has committed a crime and that they've established or collected at least enough evidence to prove that person committed the crime, then they will submit that case to the district attorney's office. Sometimes they'll get a warrant and they'll send it over to us, and sometimes they just send it over to us beforehand. Um, But either way, my office then reviews all of the police reports, we look at all of the evidence, and we decide what, if any charges, we believe we can prove beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's usually the difference that people get hung up on. Um, when right. people, when police go and arrest somebody, they're doing it off of probable cause. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we are charging someone, we have to, we charge them because we believe we can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, which is a much, much higher standard than there would be in other areas of the law. Right. Which is what kind of what we're seeing in the news today, just like where things right. are coming with indictments and indictment being really, you're arrested, right? I mean, it's, uh, there are things that I think there's words that get used, but in the 
common terms. You have been arrested when you're indicted, mm-hmm. and now you. But you also have victims of that crime, and it sounds like that's kind of where you come in. So, so what kind of program do you have that you're trauma informed, like to deal with, you know, with trauma of like being such a large part of your job? Sure. So we've had a, a really wonderful opportunity over the last few years. Um, we had uh, been working with the Colorado Springs Police Department, the El Paso County Sheriff's Office, which are probably our two biggest law enforcement agencies uh, locally. And we've been part of kind of a federal grant program uh, to specifically aim at prosecuting and investigating um, adult sexual assault cases. Um, the grant itself expands out into domestic violence as well, but my unit particularly deals with the adult sexual assault cases. Mm-hmm. Um, as part of that, we've had a lot of opportunities to do trainings on kind of trauma-informed investigations, trauma-informed practices, uh, so that we can hopefully mitigate, um, you know, the collateral trauma that we cause people mm-hmm. when we are calling them, talking to them, um, going through the court process. Uh, that has been, I think, a very useful program, and it's been a very wonderful Um, chance to learn and kind of develop skills for some of our um, attorneys who come into SVU so that they understand and can use those skills when they move then to other areas of the office. Yeah, that that's that's something I really, really liked. What I heard about you guys is that that is a program on dealing with the trauma, not only the trauma of the crime, but the trauma of the process. That's one of the things that I really like why this podcast is existing is because how are we helping people get through the trauma of the process, sometimes on top of trauma, right? So how, how do you handle that kind of stress when someone's already gone through that trauma as a victim? And then you've got to, sh- so come, let's, I want to walk into trial a little bit. Here's where I'm going. So how, how do you work with a victim who has been traumatized and then, then has to go into trial to either testify against the person or what's your process there? Um, so we've, we try to kind of get in touch with victims early on in the process. Once, once an arrest has been made, and even before that, our law enforcement agencies have victim advocates that will be in touch with the victims. Um, our office has dedicated victim advocates who work with, well, our victims specifically in SVU. Um, we have three excuse me, two dedicated victim advocates who work on all of our cases. And so they will be in touch with those victims. They keep them updated about court dates. If the victims have questions, then if they can't reach us, the attorneys, then they'll get in touch with the victim advocates. Um, And usually, I apologize, I should probably say it the other way around. Usually they're getting in touch with the victim advocates first, and then they get in touch with the attorneys uh, second. But we try very hard to have kind of trial prep meetings, if not multiple times at least as we get closer to the actual trial date, um, and try to kind of walk people through what is it like to go into a courtroom? Um, What are you expecting to have happen? Who's going to be there? What kind of questions are we going to talk about? What topics may come up? And we always unfortunately have to walk that line between, you know, trying to answer everyone's questions and make them feel comfortable without you know, suggesting answers or, or telling people, right. hey, this is what to say when this comes right. up. Um, you know, we want people to come in and obviously tell the truth, um, but we also want them to be comfortable. And so we, we right. tend to walk that, that balance. 
Yeah, I know. It's uh, I've been talking about this right here after Labor Day. I'm releasing um, self-guided legal meditations. And so that it allows someone in that process, the prep process, which I want to talk to you about, to sit down and listen to a meditation that walks them through the process, not just a meditation, but in a legal way that they can understand what the courtroom looks like, what it's like to be in a deposition, what it's like. So what do you do to prep them from an emotional standpoint, not just a legal, this are the questions, this is the process or the procedure, but how do, how do you, do you have any way that you do that? So I guess I will say each attorney has their own mm-hmm. approach Style. or, yeah, mm-hmm. or method. Um, I try to, when I go through with them kind of the topics that I'm going to talk about, once we get to the actual violence or to, um, I mean, all of this is going to be emotional, so I don't want to to minimize right. that in any way, but to the right. parts that I think we all know are going to trigger those emotional responses or that are more likely to be the difficult ones to talk about. I try to at least acknowledge to, you know, the victim or the witness, whoever it is, that, you know, this may be difficult to talk about. Um, And I encourage them that, you know, if they find themselves struggling, it's okay to to ask for a break. It's okay to, Mm -hmm. you know, take a moment and take a deep breath and just, you know, try to kind of, not necessarily relax, but, you know, if you take that deep in-breath and then pause and take a deep out-breath, you know, that sometimes helps people when they're dealing with an emotional reaction. Um, yeah. We always have in our courtrooms uh, a pitcher of water and a little cup for the witness themselves. And so I tell them, you know, listen, pour yourself a cup when you first get up there, because when it gets difficult, you don't want to have to spend that mental energy to say, oh, no, now I need to go pour something. You want it to be right there. And it's okay to reach out and take a sip of water and to take a, a moment to kind of collect yourself. And I tell them that because, you know, I, I have never been in their position. And, and I tell them, I, I cannot understand what you are going through because I don't have that shared experience. But what I do know is that, you know, from all the people I have talked to who have shared their stories and have gone through that trial experience, I've seen the way that people have reacted. And so I try to give them a little bit of kind of sense of shared community, that they're not the only one that's been in this position. They're not the only person who's going to be in the room that cares about them. Right. Um, I try to encourage them to have somebody in the room that they, that they want as an emotional support person. Our victim advocates are always there in trial. So if a victim wants to have their advocate there, they're allowed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, for, for kids, sometimes they want their family, sometimes they don't. Um, you know, for adults, it's kind of unfortunately the same. Sometimes they have right. a friend, but sometimes they just don't want anyone to know. So I, I try to give them that that kind of emotional tool of, you know, here's what we're going to do. Here's what you should be expecting. And I think that just acknowledging that this is going to be difficult gives them some permission to feel that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that hel- at least from what people have told me, I think that that helps. Wow, that was just so well said. What a compassionate district attorney you are <laughs> that I, I find really endearing because to put yourself in the shoes of that person sitting there and and, and being honest with them that, look, I, I don't know what you're going through, but here's what I know I can do to help you, I think is also a way that puts someone in a comfort zone that you've got their back. And that's in, in the meditations I'm working on, I'm saying that, you know, you have advocates sitting next to you, you know, take a breath. Everything you're hitting on is everything I've been talking about in the meditations to stop, 
So hopefully when they get into court, they're also hearing it from you. They're hearing it from something they might be listening to that allows them to kind of feel like, look, the judge is also there to protect you, right? That's something I think that people forget. The judge is there to also rule over you, but it's also there to pretty much protect the witness. Do you ever talk from from that perspective? We try to, when we talk about the judge, we try to kind of keep them as neutral as possible in the, in the descriptions. Um, you know, some judges have their own uh, idiosyncrasies, right? And so yeah, we try to prepare, sure. prepare jurors for that. Um, you know, some talk louder than others. And so we want them to know, you know, it's nothing you did. It's just the way that this judge, you know, talks. It's, but, you know, we, we try to get them to think of, you know, look, the judge is there to make sure that everyone's treated fairly. And so if, if I object, if the defense attorney objects, um, that's not something that you did wrong. It's something that we need to, you know, work out amongst the attorneys to figure out, you know, either I asked the question in a bad way or maybe we're getting to a topic that um, we've decided we just can't, we can't tell the jury about. And so, you know, when we... I try to reassure them that if somebody stands up and objects, usually it's loud, it's it's disruptive. Um, don't take that as a personal thing. Don't think you've done something wrong. It's really more of, you know, right. background fight that we're having. <laughs> well, and how how do you deal with like? Because I've worked on cases, you know, high profile cases in the past, um, working with district attorneys. How do you prep them when it comes to the media? Do you do you try to do you have cases like that where the media is involved, where you also have to you have that third layer, like here they've gone through trauma, now they've got the trauma of the process, and they've got the media on top of it. I mean, how? How do you address that issue? So for a lot of our cases, our local media at least tends to go in cycles. Um, when there's an, when the event happens, there's a lot of coverage. When someone's arrested, there's a lot of coverage. Um, when you get to kind of preliminary hearings or initial stages, there's coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, for those cases that really have the long-term kind of continuous coverage, the conversation is a little bit different. I always encourage people to just know who they're talking to. Um, you know, understand that the media is going to be, you know, reaching out about this case. They might know who you are, they might not, but their interest is in asking questions and in putting out a story, a product. They may have bad information. They may have heard from people who, um, who you know, the police haven't heard from yet. And so I just tell them, you know, the the chances are that. The media does not have as much information as I do or as the detectives do. And so if you're ever concerned that you're learning something from the media, uh, it's a pretty good chance that that's not true and to reach out to us and we can help them with that. Yeah, especially um, social media, right? I mean, you get yes. social media in the way and you get all that going on. And, you know, it's just like, you know, you just so much. We don't know what's true anymore. And it's got to be so tough on especially victims on how did I not know this and why haven't I been told or, you know, that kind of thing. That's got to be really tough. The The benefit we have is that um, we our office does have a, a public information officer. And so whenever we have kind of high profile trials that are going, we always kind of loop him in. And so if the families tell us, I don't want to talk to the media, he's always been very good about kind of helping them to figure out ways we can move them within the courthouse or uh, having conversations with the reporters who are there that, you know, families here, but they don't want to make any statements. Um, and thankfully, the relationship, at least over the last few years, has been very good where, you know, they they respect that, you know, families either do or don't want to talk. 
if they do, and we have had cases where families really do want to talk to um, to the press, uh, then we just help coordinate that and kind of give them that space of this is where it's going to happen. Here's you know how the process is going to work. I freely acknowledge I have not been as involved in that process because we have a PIO, uh, but but I think that it, it is helpful for people to, as I've said in other, in other settings, to not have that uncertainty of like, well, how is this going to work? What's this going to look like? Um, and just explaining to them what that, you know, how that works gets them more comfortable in, in whatever the situation is. Yeah, it's the, it's the you know, fear, fear and anxiety is always just because of the unknown, right? Right. If we can, so I wanted to go into the, you know, the the way I found you was the um, news uh, cast on how you're working with children, which I just thought I just totally fell in love with you. <laughs> so I was like, I have to talk with him because this is so up my alley. So I I would love for you to explain it versus myself because I just found it so amazing. So you talk with you know working with children. So explain to me how this this came about and were demonstrative and everything else. Sure. So um, one of the, I've talked a lot about our different law enforcement partners, but one of the the wonderful things we have here is a nonprofit called Safe Passage that's a child advocacy center. And there, uh, there are child advocacy centers all across the, the United States, but um, the goal of those locations is to provide a safe place for kids to come in and to either talk about what's going on with them um, or to give resources to families um, who might be going through domestic violence or child abuse or sexual assaults or anything else. Um, Safe Passage had uh, had somehow found out about this wonderful resource, this gentleman out of Michigan who was creating miniature mock courtrooms. And the idea was that these courtrooms would be used by child witnesses or victims before they came into court. And that way they'd they kind of know, as we've been talking about, uh, you know, it. who's there, where they're going to be, how they're going to move within it. the space. And so uh, the director of Safe Passage reached out to me and said, hey, listen, we found this. Would you guys like to use this? Uh, and I thought that was just a wonderful idea. So uh, they reached out and coordinated with this nonprofit and got us um, a model co- uh, courtroom. And then when we started realizing, you know, this is something that's, that is unusual. It's not something that is used within our jurisdiction or um, certainly in some of the neighboring jurisdictions, we thought, you know, this is something we should probably tell people about. Uh, and so our, our PIO uh, reached out and kind of put together the news release. Um, and I, I really appreciate him doing that because we have had a lot of, of very positive responses um, of people kind of saying, just like you, that this was such a great idea and a wonderful resource for us to have. Yeah, definitely. I don't, I don't need you to get me in contact with him. I, I really want to talk to the nonprofit out in Michigan, too, because that's just such a, you know, I'm all about the visual. I mean, my whole career has been based on, you know, visual persuasion. And and there's nothing more, uh, I think, calming to see it, you know, see that it's not that scary. I just interviewed someone yesterday where this the courtroom being so sterile and never not knowing what to expect made it more stressful versus this such a brilliant idea. And I'm so happy to hear you're adopting that in a way that allows kids to be like, look, this is, this is a process. It's, it's not, it doesn't have to be intimidating. It doesn't have to be so traumatic, you know? Um, So it sounds like also um, you deal with like disabled elderly victims also, um, who require like special handling, like how do, how do you work with that? Like, how do you handle, do you have 
certain training in that as well, or how do you how do you deal with that? Um, most well, yeah, I think our those cases tend to fall into two categories. We either have um, elderly individuals who may have kind of health issues or mobility issues, and so they um, unfortunately then fall victim to to fraud or to um, kind of abuse within whatever facility they're in, whether that's at home or, or a private facility. Um, but then we also do work with individuals who have um, intellectual or developmental um, delays. And so then we're mm-hmm. kind of finding ways that we can interact and uh, explain the process to them. Um, and, you know, those two different populations have different needs. And so we try to mm-hmm. kind of focus on what is the need of the person and how can we address that um, for our mobility or elderly clients where, or victims where we need to kind of help them with just physically getting to the courthouse, um, mm-hmm. we have investigators who work in our office who certainly can help with transporting witnesses and victims. Um, and thankfully, we've been able to find some local resources that can help with transportation as well. Mm-hmm. For those individuals who may have other kind of delays, then, you know, we try to work with a – sometimes the – the way to approach it is the same as you would with a very young child where Mm -hmm. you're trying to explain things at their level of understanding. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, people always, always say, you know, lawyers are, are, are stuffy and they talk, you know, above where everybody else is thinking. Right. And, and so, you know, yes, the law is very complicated. We use a lot of Latin and it's hard to access, but the concepts are not that difficult when you can break Mm -hmm. them down and explain them in a way that I think everybody would be able to understand. We do it all the time when we go in front of juries and try to explain Mm -hmm. how the law applies. Um, So, you know, all you're doing is changing your audience and saying, listen, Mm -hmm. you don't, you know, maybe as a seven-year-old, right, you don't have that frame of reference that a 30-year-old would. And so I can't explain it in the same way. And so we have to do that then with um, our intellectual or or developmental delayed um, victims or witnesses and try to get them to understand what it is we're asking and what the process is and what we're doing. You know, unfortunately, sometimes we're successful and sometimes we aren't. Um, But usually we're working with guardians in either situation And so we try to make sure that at least the guardian understands dates, times, locations, you know, things that we really need them to to do for the process to work. Right. What's the reason I have a business and have had a business all this time? I've I've always called myself the bridge between the law and real life. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's kind of been my role as a persuasion strategist, uh, because I love how hyper-focused you are about the person in front of you, not just the process and the procedures. There's something really beautiful about that with you guys on, uh, if that's the way your department, you know, works, that's, that's, um, somewhat rare in my experience that you're really hyper-focused on that person in front of you. How can you get work with them the best you can with whatever, uh, either disability or trauma or whatever they have. So I, I commend you for that. Cause that's really, to me, what has to happen in the courtrooms, you have to be able to help. And, and those are, it could be multiple individuals per trial, correct? I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean it's just one person per trial. Sure. I mean, unfortunately, we have multi-victim cases or we may have uh, witnesses who are kids. And, you know, we have to treat them yeah. with the same kind of respect as we do people who are actual victims as well. Yeah, that's that's what, uh, you know what, honestly, that was the seed to my podcast. Um, I've talked about this before 
those kids that testified during the George Floyd trial, you know, it was like, what happened to the, how were they prepped? You know, when I saw them, some of them were barely old enough to be on camera. Mm-hmm. Then you're in front of the entire world cha- trying to change social issues and where are they today? And so, so, so let's talk about the transformation side. Do, do you follow any of your victims later to make sure they're, or, or give them resources to, after the process, because that's one of my big things is, yeah. you know, we, we can prep and prep and prep and help them get through the process. And then it's like, see ya. And I, I, I don't quite understand that, trying to change a little bit of that. So do you have anything like that in your office? You know, I was thinking about that after um, you had reached out. And I don't know that we have kind of a, a like formalized process to kind of, kind of follow process, people yeah. after they leave. Um, or after mm-hmm. case is over, we do. Um, Colorado has adopted a Victims' Rights Act and a Victims' Rights Amendment to our Constitution, where if somebody is given probation or they file post-conviction motions, then we have an obligation to notify the victim and to kind of get them up to speed on what's happening, get their input. Um, so we do have a process to try to find people, you know, after years have gone by. What I will say is. Um, we have always really kind of tried to encourage victims when they come in um, to this process to take advantage of some of the um, victim assistance programs, victim compensation mm-hmm. programs that exist mm-hmm. and so that they can get in touch with um, therapy, they can get you know assistance right. moving or, or whatever they need. And so I, you know, I I've certainly have encouraged the other attorneys on my team and, and, you know, this is kind of the aspirational, I, I, I hope that we can do this in every case, but to, to try to mm-hmm. encourage our victims, you know, this is not an easy process, right? If you have been taking advantage of therapy, you really should continue with that once the trial is over. Um, you know, when we've had, uh, I've had some homicide cases recently where family members initially were very resistant to the idea of getting therapy. It was, no, no, I'm okay. I'm strong. I, I don't need it. And then in, that's usually the, that's usually the feeling because of societal, you know, problem or issues that put, put that blanket on us. Well, and certainly gender roles play into that too. It's, it, mm-hmm. you know, this was a situation where it was a father whose daughter had been, had been murdered. Um, and, you know, he was very much like the, the no, I'm going to hold it together for the family. I'm the bedrock. I'm the strong person. Right. And the conversations we kept having with him was, you know, that may be true, but you don't know what this is going to be like. And that was a case that, unfortunately, I think is becoming more and more frequent where a lot of the crime was recorded, um, audio and video. And so in those situations, you know, we really try to talk with families about, listen, th- this is not something that is ever easy to listen to. And I can only imagine that it is harder when it's somebody you know and love. It's hard and enough. see it. Right. Not just to listen, but you then see it, which is yeah. a thousand times more packed into your brain. You know, I mean, it's imprinted so deeply. You know, and it's the same conversation to some degree, a variant of it that we have about autopsy pictures and being present for the testimony of medical professionals. It's, you know, do you really want that memory of your loved one to be this image or this, you know, very clinical and cold description of things? Right. Um, You know, do you want that 
that last image to be a happy memory of somebody that, you know, is no longer here. And right. some people take us up on that, some people don't. But for those that want to see the evidence beforehand, um, that's always kind of that cushioning conversation mm -hmm. beforehand of, you know, if you if you want to do this, we will show you this evidence because it's going to get played in open court. And we, we right. you know, I, if you're going to be there, I don't want the first time you see it to be in front of a jury where you're going to have right. that emotional reaction. Right. Um, but even in situations where they have seen it beforehand, after trials, we, we try to have those conversations of this is not easy. And you just right. went through a very difficult process. You know, having somebody to talk to and having somebody to process with uh, really is important. Um, we don't necessarily as an office have the resources to give people additional counseling sessions or, or things that uh, that they would then be able to use. And so it's really mm -hmm. been more of kind of having that conversation and encouraging them to look for resources. Um, but I think that having something there, you know, post-trial, post-case would be a great thing. Yeah, yeah that's, that's what I'm trying to build. I'm trying to build something that allows us to, you know, to have a resource center that, you know, we could either, you know, my, I talked about my friend, uh, Joel, mm -hmm. who's, uh, got online free therapy, um, you know, change your algorithm. I mean, there's, there's places. So I'm hoping to get, you know, my website up where we, there could be a witness resource center basically where it allows people like yourself to, to guide them in places that they might not even know, even they could get help, yeah. you know, they just, when, when you don't know it's there, you don't do anything about it. So then you're like, then ego comes in and you've got to hold on to, you know, like you said, the, the gender issue as well. But have you seen people get through the process, you know, from a transformation side? Have you seen people walk through it in a way that tends to at least see some healing or some um, some positive way out of such so, a um, tough situation? Yes. I, I've had some cases that, that were very very difficult on not just you know the the person who went through it but also um you know personally and just the people involved in in prosecuting the cases but the remarkable thing i've seen is that of those people that i've stayed in contact with um, many of them have really done well over time um there's one lady that was a victim in a, a very very gruesome um, sexual assault that was fairly early in my time in our special victims unit. Um, this was 10, 11 years ago at this point. And throughout that entire process of multiple trials and multiple post-conviction motions and things that we had to go back to court for, she mm -hmm. always had just so much grace and, and, you know, she struggled a lot. Um, mm. And, you know, I talked to her throughout the years, especially mm -hmm. when, you know, court dates came up again. Um, but she was always so giving about, you know, trusting us, wanting to help if there was something she could do. Um, and just, uh, I think, trying to find ways to keep moving and to keep, you know, addressing whatever had happened. Positive. And yeah. Somewhere, yeah, to, to, to heal, basically, and try and find ways to heal in that sense. It's So, you know, we talk about everybody else. You know, we talk about 
witnesses and victims and we talk about, but, but what about you? Like what, what do you and, and your staff do? Cause I, I know in, in my experience, like when you're talking about autopsy photos, I have seen a lot of those and the, those shook a lot of the core in my life. And what, what do you do to take care of yourself? Cause this is obviously emotionally draining day in day out for you. I mean, what do you do to work on yourself? Um, I mean, I, I probably could be much better than I, than I am. Um, that's that's normally right. the answer for most of my attorneys. It's like I don't do it quite enough, but I, I I like to at least bring it to the forefront of like how do you process, how do you handle yourself, and 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 heal because it's got to be very emotional for you. You know, as well I um yes, it, it is. Um, I'm very lucky in that um, my wife is a is a counselor, and um, you know for obvious reasons, I you know she's not going to be my counselor. Mm-hmm. Um, but right. it's been very nice to have somebody who can look at me, you know, from the outside and say, you know, something's obviously bothering you or, mm-hmm. you know, Hey, your filter is disappearing and support. maybe you need to yeah. go talk to support someone. system. Whenever I've had people coming into SVU, I've, I've really encouraged them. You need someone on the outside, whether that's a significant other or a friend or whatever, but somebody who's not in our unit, who can kind of be that kind of that, that guidepost right. for you. You know, we, we've also uh, this year created a um, employee wellness program within our office and we're offering um, every employee uh, two free counseling sessions within a year. And we've, uh, found wow. a, a wonderful partner who uh, also takes uh, our county's insurance plan um, so that if people find that, <laughs> you know, this is something that's a resource that they really want to continue with, they don't have to go hunt and find somebody else then to, to you know, take on their case. They can stay with whoever they have found. So far, I've, we've heard some very good kind of responses about this. But I think that one of the biggest things is just, you know, I, I'm hoping uh, that there's more of a societal shift to making it more acceptable to talk about mental health issues, mm-hmm. to talk about, you know, burnout and difficulties with really sensitive topics. Well, you know, and, and again, I keep going back to what a compassionate, you know, leader you are because you wouldn't find that coming from most DA's offices. You know, it's, it's it, to me, at least my experience it's it's the law it's it's very black and white it's you know and so to to see that happening within a da's office within police departments you know being able to start talking about this and changing that wave a little bit i think also allows us to feel like as the common folk that aren't in the law enforcement or the you know in the legal department that you're in like as a lawyer because i that's one thing i'm not a lawyer so it's like I, I can look at it from a different perspective, but someone who is in that arena to have compassion, I think, is just so needed through the process. So I, I really commend you for looking at that from that perspective. It's it's pretty admirable. I have to admit that. Uh, and I knew when I I saw the article, I was like, OK, I, <laughs> I know I know Kelson's going to be right as a fit to um so we're going to wrap a few things up here, but uh, Kelson, where do where do people find you, or, or do you are you on LinkedIn, or are you? Uh... Um, you know, I think I have a LinkedIn profile, but I'm not sure I've looked at it in a very long time. Um, but I I am on LinkedIn. Um, the office um, is probably the 
the easiest way if anybody wanted to reach out. Your public information director or officer is who? It's Howard Black, though unfortunately he's retiring soon. Um, so I would have to find oh. the uh, contact information for uh, for who is coming in after him. And unfortunately, I know I saw an email recently on who that is, and I just do not remember uh, <laughs> at the moment. That's all right. We can put that on the website later because uh, I think it would be a great resource just to you know have people talk. And I think this is this interview is a is a fantastic resource for people to understand that the DA's office is not the big scary big bad wolf. It really can be something that is there to help you, support you. And um, so uh, I just want you to take care of yourself. And uh, I really appreciate the great work you're doing. So, Kelson, thank you so much for uh, for this interview today. It's really been really, really uh, very heartfelt. Thank you so much. No, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful experience. And I'm glad that you're putting all of this information and these topics out there into the world. I, I, I really think that the more we talk about the process and the more we talk about you know, how people's trauma impacts things, um, that's the only way we're going to ever be able to really address it. Right. Well, great. Well, thanks again. So, well, everyone, please don't forget, go out and spread some love and have a really great day. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Trauma, Trial and Transformation. If you want to share your experience as a witness, please forward your information to info at juliethuck.com. For more information on Juliet's 30-year career in the courtroom, visit us at juliethuck.com. There you can find your books, The Equation of Persuasion, and 50 Ways to Get Your Way, available on Amazon. Remember to follow and subscribe to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation wherever you listen to podcasts. The content, opinions, and information shared by the hosts and guests on this podcast are not to be considered professional legal advice or therapeutic counseling. If you need assistance, consult with a licensed attorney or therapist if you are appearing as a witness, experiencing emotional trauma, or are involved in any sensitive legal matters. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Thank you.